I, I've talked to a number of my friends that have retired uh, in the last four or five years. And the thing that they all say is they have yet to find something that fills the competitive void. You know, I, I actually draw a comparison between what you described to being on the trail. Yeah. That's probably the closest I'll ever get to an NBA game. And then, yeah. and, and, and then uh, the, uh, though I have been courtside, so, you know, there's that. But certainly I can see people who in politics also chase that high again. Right, very happy to welcome to Yang Speaks or appear on his podcast, depending upon where you're listening to this. The 15th most prolific three-point shooter in NBA history, Mr. JJ Redick. JJ, welcome. Andrew, thanks for having me on. I'm actually I'm actually tied for 14th with LeBron. Yeah, for, you're gonna beat LeBron prolific, in a minute so. as soon as games <laughs> resume. That's true. You're tied for 14th. I, I didn't yeah. mean to sell you short. No, JJ. I'm just kidding. I'm only kidding. Um, no, I'm ex- I'm excited to to hopefully. Uh, play some basketball. I don't think anyone uh, expected us to be um, potentially playing games under these circumstances. So uh, it should be a little little weird. Well, for you, I feel like um, for you, it'd be a bit of a homecoming because you started your career in Orlando. So it's going to be like going back to familiar haunts, though I guess it's not in the arena. Um, it's, yeah. it's over across the way. And uh, in Disney World, you were saying that this reminds you of AAU. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, so starting in eighth grade and then ninth grade, tenth grade, eleventh grade, each summer after those grades, you would go down to Orlando for like two, three weeks, uh, and just you'd stay at a hotel in like Kissimmee, and you'd shuttle back and forth between Disney Wild World, Wild World of Sports, and you'd play, you know, two or three games a day for for weeks at a time. Uh, the difference now is that, um, we can't leave the property. So we're, we're like quarantined in one place for potentially, you know, three months. Um, but it'll be very similar. The interesting thing is the league is now saying that, uh, if you're not playing in a game, uh, you know, you can go watch other teams play in person because there's going to be no fans in the crowd. So we're all sort of in the same bubble. So I'm, I'm actually interested to see how no fans plays out and how other guys going to games play out. And if they start heckling, you know, friends on their team or maybe guys they don't like on the other team, because there's not going to be any, any other noise, fan noise to, to, to filter. They can hear you. It's true. You shout some shit (laughs) out. They'll they'll, they'll, they'll hear you loud and clear. Yeah. So what proportion of NBA players do you think played in those AAU games? Uh, Probably most of the domestic. Is that right? I would assume so. I think a lot of guys uh, in my generation certainly played in that AAU tournament down in Orlando. So it's going to feel familiar to just about everyone in a different way, at least that came of age in the same way. Now, for you, you're a family man at this point. You've got uh, young kids. Uh, and does the family go with you? Is that uh, is that the plan or how does that work? Well, the NBA has said, and the and the NBPA, our our union, uh, agreed to allow families to come into the bubble once the first round of the playoffs are done. So most teams will arrive sometime between July seventh and 9th, and the first round of the playoffs will be done 
probably around the end of August. So you're looking at around two months if you make it that far with no family. But for most players that you know don't live in the same place that they play, like myself, I live in Brooklyn. I'm playing in New Orleans. Um, you know, I've got a quarantine down in New Orleans, so my family's not coming with me. So I actually will be without my family for for at least two months um, because I'm headed down to to New Orleans uh, momentarily. Yeah. Oh, that's really difficult, man. I mean, how old are your kids? They're going to be six and four in August. So if we make the playoffs, I won't be there for their birthdays. <laughs> yeah, I mean, having two young kids myself, two months consecutively away from them is a long time. Like yeah. I, I was traveling on the road for the campaign, but even in my case, most like one to two week periods, I'd be able to sneak back home for like a day or two. Like if you go 10 days in a row not seeing your family, that's actually a long time when you got young kids. So for you, two months, that must be much longer than you'd be used to. Is that right? For sure. And it's interesting you bring up the point about trying to sneak back home for a day because there's periods of time during the season or during our marriage where you know Chelsea maybe was in New York for an extended period of time. I was still playing in L.A., and we would have these two to three day gaps and I would actually fly LA to New York to go back home. Or in the case of New Orleans, like she went up for Christmas break and stayed through Christmas with the kids. I was on a West Coast trip. I happened to be up here like two days after they came up here um, playing Philly. So I drove up after the game and then flew back to New Orleans the next day just to see the kids for an, literally an hour that time. Literally so, an hour, dude. Literally yeah, an I, hour. I, I, I did the same shit. <laughs> yeah. Where it would be like, I would take the red eye back from California, like, you know, uh -huh. be like fundraising or campaigning out there and then take the red eye, show up, surprise the kids for like a couple of hours and then like, you know, hop on a plane to Iowa or whatever. What's, what's the longest you've gone? Do you know like the longest you've gone without seeing your kids? Um, during the heyday of the campaign, it stretched on to maybe, let's call it, uh, two weeks, like between two and three weeks where I would just not have um, any exposure to my family. Uh, and that was really hard, you know, like uh, down the stretch, the family actually came to me um, when we had a campaign bus and the rest of it. And then I got dad cool points. Like it was the first time my kids actually thought like my running for president was cool. It was like yeah. there's a bus with dad's head <laughs> on it. Um, but, but so, yeah, I, I, but I was like you where I would like spend eight hours traveling to get like two or three hours with the family and then hit the road again. Uh, but 15 days, I think, around that that level. This will this will absolutely, absolutely be the longest period of time that I will have gone without seeing the kids. Um, obviously, for my wife, I went the first 22 years of my life without seeing her. So I should be fine in that regard. <laughs> well, one of the things that happened to me, JJ, is like, like so, and, and this is something, this will just be general relationship or marriage advice or whatever. Yeah. Um, but one thing that that uh, goes wrong is when you and your partner are focused on different things and then you talk to each other and like there's like a, a bit of a barrier between you. And at least in my family's case, it's like my wife's like laser focused on the kids and then I'd be laser focused on, let's call it work or the campaign. And then it, it's like harder to communicate with your partner. And I think like at least for me, Evelyn naturally just focus on the kids. So like the more you could share, then the more you guys sure. like sync, sync up and click. So the fact that you're not going to see your kids for X period of time, I mean, like it sounds like Chelsea would be like, I'm not going to miss JJ. But Chelsea starts to like, <laughs> it starts to eat at her yeah. that the kids don't see you. At least that that's the way it happens in, in my house. Well, it's interesting because 
I feel like the dynamics of, uh, you know, a lot of relationships are that way where, where there's one person who has to sacrifice a little bit and be laser focused on the house. And truthfully, in a way, like I have the luxury of being laser focused on sort of the big picture of things. And, and Chelsea said that to me the other day, you know, you, you always think about the big things, the big things, the big things. I need help on the details, i.e., you know, making the sure, sure the kids change out of their pajamas in the morning and can you do the dishes and doing all those sorts of things, which I, I naturally do. But I, look, we, we can all sort of help out our partner a little bit more. So it's that's been one of the interesting things just about this whole experience in in COVID is um, I mean, I've never I've never lived you this consecutively. No. Uh, so it's, it's been, it's been interesting. It's been, it's been an experience for sure. Well, I'll say for me, I've gotten to know my kids better, uh, because I was on the trail for the last two years, you know, you'd have like a day here, a day there, and then spending weeks consecutively with them. Like, you know, I actually just literally know my children better than I uh, did at any point in the past. And, And, you know, and also my kids, your kids are about the same age. They're actually like developing, more uh, personality and awareness where you can interact with them in different ways than was the case when they were younger. Um, so I'm sure you had the same experience. I mean, it, it's one of the things you don't like to, you know, go into it. But like, at least for me, that was sort of a blessing, honestly, of this time. Oh, no doubt. Um, and and my youngest, who will be four, like I said, in August, is really starting to develop his personality, where you know, when we moved to New Orleans and, and my family came with me to New Orleans. Um, so when we moved in October, you know, he was he was a certain way. And now he's just a completely different kid. Seeing, <laughs> like, no, but it, another kid. Yeah, it's it's and he's he's like thin, we used to call him squishy because he was a, he was a little bit chubby. So actually Knox, my oldest, named him squishy when he was a baby because he was a very chubby baby. But he's now like thinned out and he's he's got muscles and he's. He's so talkative. It's just, it's fun for any parent. You know, it's, it's really fun to, to see your kids obviously grow physically, but uh, seeing their personalities develop is, is one of like the most rewarding things in life for sure. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, man. Uh, you know, I remember when you signed with New Orleans, I, I remember um, scratching my chin for a minute being like, huh, because, you know, I mean, like you, yeah. you had this. Um, awesome career. I think you might have like the longest streak of consecutive playoffs made or something like that in the NBA right now. What is it like 12 years in a row, 13 years? Longest active playoff streak. Yeah. 13 years in a row. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're clearly in demand. Like your core skill is now the most important skill in the NBA. Arguably you played on these contending teams and showed that you can help anyone win uh, at the highest levels. And so I remember when you signed with new Orleans, like I personally, as a fan was like, you know, uh, like scratching my chin, being like, huh, like that, that's sort of an interesting choice for, um, for JJ. Uh, can, can you, and you probably talked about this in another context, but like, was a lot of that, uh, you know, driven by at that point, had they already gotten the number one pick and you knew it was going to be Zion? Cause I figured there's a Duke connection or was there something else that drove you to new Orleans? Sure. Um, I had finished my second year in Philly. We lost to the Toronto Raptors uh, in a heartbreaking fashion, Kawhi Leonard hits a, a buzzer beater in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference semifinals to beat us. Um, there's that sort of licking the wound period that, that every athlete goes through when your season ends without a championship. So there's two weeks that go by. <clears throat> and 
you know, then all of a sudden it was like, well, we're a month away from free agency. And so you start having conversations with your agent and, you know, people around the league to try to get, get a sense of what the landscape is going to be. Um, you know, the issue for me was I, I, I did want to go back to Philly. We had sort of established uh, a life in Brooklyn. I was commuting to and from Philly every day. You know, it was not an easy commute, but I was doing it. My family was really settled here in Brooklyn. My sister or my, my wife's twin sister lives three blocks from us here in Brooklyn. So we, we just felt like this was really our home. Um, the opportunity with New Orleans, I looked at it in a number of ways. Uh, first of all, financially, it was the most lucrative contract that was offered to me last summer. Um, but Trajan Langdon had just been hired as the GM. David Griffin had just been hired as the president of basketball ops. Um, or vice president, I should say, his official title is vice president. All intents and purposes, he's the president. Um, they get the number one pick uh, about three or four days before free agency. They draft Zion. They draft Jackson Hayes with the eighth pick. They draft Nikhil Alexander-Walker with the 17th pick. Uh, they make the trade. They trade Anthony Davis. They bring in Lonzo Ball. They bring in Brandon Ingram. And there was a number of days where like, you're waiting. Like, I wonder if Philly is going to work out. I wonder if Philly is going to work out. And I just felt like if 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 all this great stuff is happening in New Orleans, like I I can move my family for a year or two, and and this will be a great opportunity as well. Um, it also offered me another uh, another chance to to mentor younger players and to sort of be the the voice of reason in the locker room and and to. Um, to help guys, um, obviously grow as players, but, but, but grow as men in this league. And, and that's been something that I got to do in, in Philly and that I've continued in new Orleans. And that's been hugely rewarding for me. That's awesome. I'm sure that's one reason why Trajan and David wanted you so badly because they had, they knew they'd have a bunch of youngsters and then they were going to bring you in as like the ultra disciplined vet (laughs) to help, help steer them straight. Yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy in that I knew if you're going to spend eight hours doing something, you should probably invest in doing it right. That's why I love Helix Sleep, which will send a mattress to your door that's made just for you. You take the Helix Sleep quiz and you get matched with a mattress based upon whether you want it to be soft, medium, firm, how you sleep, other variables, and then voila, it gets sent to your door and you can try it for up to 100 nights and send it back. They have a 10 plus year warranty because they believe in their product so much. I do too, my kids do too. They actually seek out this mattress even though it was designed not for them. (laughs) That's how good this product is. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple chiropractors and doctors because they think it'll make you healthier. Don't take my word for it. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang and use code helixpartner20. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. You know, I have a question as a fan that I'd love your perspective on. Um, so you come into the league 13 years ago. Uh, you know, you have this really storied college career. Uh, 
but it's not like you're a slam dunk sure thing. You don't get like tons of playing time early in your career. It's a different league then too, where you know it wasn't um, as shooting focused. And so my my big question is, you've now played with like hundreds of different dudes <laughs> across the the yeah. league, across their career. Um, my my big question is like, how much of NBA player success is predicated on just like getting a little bit lucky in terms of having like a coaching staff that believes in you? Yeah. Or like uh, the right development around you. Like, how many guys come into the league where you know clearly they actually had the right talent level or makeup to succeed, but it didn't work out for whatever reason? Like, how much of it's just freaking dumb luck, arbitrary, and how much <laughs> of it is you know? Because because yeah. to me, there are all of these guys where you would think to yourself like that person should have succeeded somewhere, but they ended up in like a bad situation once, twice, and then that's it. Because right. you know the NBA is not exactly like a oh like let's give this person another chance kind of environment it's, it's like everyone's just trying to win 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 um so how how much of the success is based upon you're getting like the right opportunities and are there a few guys that you played with where you were like that person actually should still be in the nba um but is not because they just had a little bad bit of like bad luck or bad organization fit sure um it's a great question first of all and i think you could apply this to a lot of different industries, a lot of different professions. Yes. So there's there's five to 10% of NBA players where luck, situation, teammates, system, it doesn't really matter. They're just that much better than everyone else. Whether it's physical or skill, they're just that much better. And those guys, I believe, could thrive on any team, in any system, with any coach. Uh, then there's a there's a there's a separate group of guys who, um, you know, call it like eighty percent of you know seventy percent of the league that, you know, they're good enough, they care enough about the game, and they they're smart enough that they can figure out and adapt coach to coach, team to team, season to season, and then the rest of the league is that you know fifteen to twenty percent of guys who. My, my math might have been off there, but but the, the, no, the no, other, you're pretty the, much right. The, the last group there, where they're 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 fringe guys, or they, it is it is uh, relevant to the, their situation and and who the coach is and who who's around them, um, and what their role is. I I would always say this in any of those, whether it's the five to ten, well, maybe not the five to ten percent, but let's say the other ninety percent of the league. Here's what matters most. Um, they have to care enough about basketball and love basketball enough to work through a lot of ups and downs, to work through the grind, to work through self-doubt and all the mental hurdles that this game provides us. Um, they, have to be, they have to be smart enough to figure all that stuff out on the fly, in real time, with immediate feedback. Um, and they also, they also have to be sort of, I, this is another part of it, they have to be smart enough to operate you know, emotionally intelligent enough to operate inside a locker room. If you're one of the five or 10% of the best guys, you can kind of afford to be an asshole. If you're in that next tier, it's hit or miss. If you're in that last tier, you can't be an asshole. You've got to be like everyone's league. favorite dude. Yeah. You're out of the league because your talent, your talent is not worth, you know, the headache that you're bringing into a locker room. Um, and look, the guys who have figured that that dynamic out maybe aren't as skilled or as talented as some of the other guys I've played with, 
but they've had 10, 11, 12, 13 year careers because they figured that out. To, to answer the last part of your question, there's a guy that I w came up with. We were in the same high school class. We were on the same McDonald's All-American team. We played in the ACC together. He left after his junior year. I entered the draft after my senior year. His name's Rashad McCants. He went to UNC. Yeah, McCants. He was like supposed was, to be. Yeah, he was an unbelievable player. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure he probably can still hoop a little bit. But uh, I, I just I thought you know when we were sort of at that age where we were transitioning in the NBA, I thought he was going to be an unbelievable player in the NBA. I don't know the reasons why he didn't have a long career, but he's one of those guys that I always think of that. Um, you know, was talented enough uh, to have a to have a long and illustrious NBA career, and for whatever reason, it just didn't work out. And and there's cases across the board, but just because I you know I was friends with Rashad, that he's the first guy I thought of. Yeah, you know, Rashad, I, I think he had said something uh, to the effect that you know, like when you get uh, some kind of negative reputation, uh, it, whether it's deserved or not, it just kind of sort of sticks with you and everyone just buys into it. I think I, I saw an interview with Rashad about that. No, I'm, I'm, I was curious about this in part because, you know, as a fan, you look up and you see that there are guys who just seem to me, it's like, well, it's strange that that person's not in the league. And of course you don't know the players, you don't know the personalities right. the way that, 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 that you do, but then you, you feel like there are some folks that, uh, you know, just had a couple of bad breaks. Um, now the I, fact that you're I want to interrupt you real quick, Andrew. Oh yeah, please. Because you brought up you brought up a great point. Um and I, I said this to our team early in the season when we were in the middle of our 13 game losing streak. And I, I brought up the point about what people say about you, what people write about you, your reputation and how that sticks. And all of us, whether we're a public figure, uh an athlete, um, we're working at Google, we're in a law law firm, whatever it may be. Uh, the people above you, they're they're writing a book about you, and everything gets put in that book, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. And when it comes time to then make decisions about your pay, about your future, about your role, what do you refer to? You refer to the book. Now, the, the book is a is a metaphor. Obviously, it's not a, it's not a physical book. Yeah. But, though sometimes it could be a literal yeah, file. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's not all of us, but. But so the, everybody is constantly having this book being written about them. And, and you have to be wary of every action that you do. So your body language matters, how you interact with your teammates, how you interact with your coaches, what you say in the media. Are you on time to things? Those things all go in the book and they all add up over six months or six years or 16 years. It all adds up. And one more thing from a fan's perspective, I, I, love, I love hearing this stuff. So there's 450 players roughly in the NBA, and there's a lot of fans out there who say such and such player sucks. A lot of fans would probably say that about me. J.J. Redick sucks, right? In reality, all 450 of us could bust anyone's ass. We would just, I mean, you don't want to see us in a one-on-one -on -one game. I guarantee you that. Um, so there, there's, there's, a, there's a sort of relative scale of talent and ability in the NBA, but relative to the to the broader world, we are the 450 play, the 450 best players in the league, with the exception of guys like Rashad, of course, and and you could probably think of a few off off the top of your head as well. Yeah, a couple of the names just popped into my head, and you could you could shoot these down because they could be totally wrong. 
Uh, but Anthony Randolph, I was like, why is that guy not in the league? And yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> That's a good one. And then of recent vintage, um, Jimmer Fredette. Like that, I feel yeah. like that dude tore it up in college. He tears it up overseas, and then anytime he gets a cup of coffee in the NBA, he's like gone. <laughs> like, yeah. like ten days later. Um, so you know, just random names that popped in my head from different time periods. But yeah, man, I mean, you guys are like the best players in the world. Any of you could bust any like normal person's, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I, I think there's, I think there has to be an ability though to sort of accept not being the man. And I'm not saying that about Rashad or Jimmer or Anthony Randolph because I've never played with any of those guys in the NBA. But I've played with enough guys to know that if they would, they would probably rather go play overseas and have the offense run through them and, and get the majority of the shots than be the eighth or ninth guy on an NBA bench. It's not that they can't play in the NBA or won't, you know, are, are not able to play in the NBA or wouldn't get a job offer. It, I think a lot of it comes down to just their happiness on a day-to-day basis in playing basketball. Because, again, from a fan's perspective, you would probably say, well, what does this guy have to complain about? He's in the NBA. But if your day-to-day enjoyment of your job, no matter what your paycheck is, I don't care who you are, your day-to-day enjoyment of your job is not what you feel like it should be, then you're going to consider other options. I think it was Freud talked about, right, uh, the key to happiness is the balance of love, work, and play. Well, unfortunately for us, you know, we get to play basketball, but it's work. And, and it, that's, that's the work portion of our life. It's not like going to the to the pickup, you know, at the, at the YMCA. That's that's play. This is this is real work. And when it it doesn't sort of fulfill you in a in a meaningful way, then maybe guys go overseas and 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 find more meaning there. People underestimate that all the time, JJ. Where they look up and say like, "Well, you know, you're getting paid X. Like, uh, suck it up. You should be happy, etc." And this translates to politics 100. percent Where I would see what other candidates were doing. And like people don't know how miserable a lot of it can be. And so you're like, oh, you know, what are you complaining about? You're, you know, running for Congress or in my case, running for president. Or in your case, it's like, you know, you're paid getting you're a professional athlete. But if it sucks, it sucks. Like you're still a human (laughs) being, you know, like if you like in in the in the example you're using, it's like if you're used to being a star with a ball in your hand and then you're like, you know, the. 12th man on the bench and you never get up like you know you could just be like that sucked <laughs> you know it's yeah. not like it doesn't really matter what's like I, you know i love to play basketball i'm not playing like you know i'm i'm low man on the totem pole and the practices the coaches uh don't value me like that can suck regardless of what your stature is in my case it was like you go you drive for hours in a rental car away from your family in the winter in iowa to the union hall and there are like eight people there and you're like this sucks. <laughs> you know? I mean, like, like yeah. it's, but, and so people like you're also human beings, like, you know, all like the human motivations still apply. It's one of the reasons why I think people love sports so much. Um, because like the, the lessons and principles apply everywhere. And a lot of the organizational success you're talking about, like do people in business have that book? Of course. Like, you know, anytime you start interacting with the org, like the, like any impression you make, it's getting logged somewhere and then you know yeah. you're you're um either given the job or not you're either given responsibility or not um i mean it's it's interesting you don't know this about me 
Um, but I was like, uh, I was brought in by the NBA Players Association to be like an entrepreneurship mentor for some of those like uh, those um, post players. And there were both current players and former players who were um, in this program. And I was just someone who came in for the day. Um, but I've met a bunch of former players. And I have to say that, like, I saw how difficult the adjustment was for many of them. Like that adjustment, and, and that's also the human thing. It's like, you think to yourself, well, like you're, you're one of the best basketball players in the world. You're, you have millions of dollars. Like there must be no problems. Uh, and, and, then they, and then you get there and then there are these people who were like, hey, I'm like retired at the age of 37. I don't know what, what the fuck to do like yeah. now. And, uh, you know, I have money, but I don't have as much money as everyone seems to think I have. Like everyone thinks I have money coming out of my ears. Yeah. And and then people are all coming to me with these opportunities that require money. And like, uh, you know, who do I trust? What decisions do I make? Like, what am I? What, so, like, you know, like the human condition applies to everyone. Like, you know, it's like uh, certainly NBA players. So I can see why players would make decisions that a fan might be like, why are they doing that? But like, you know, it just comes down to whether you enjoy it. For sure. I, I've talked to a number of my friends that um, have retired uh, in the last four or five years. And the thing that they all say is they have yet to find something that fills the competitive void, that fills the void, the feeling that you get when you're in a playoff game on the road, you win a big game, you come back to the locker room, those first few minutes back in the locker room, the euphoria you feel, the sense of accomplishment you feel, your, your, your nerves, your senses are heightened. It's like how, we, we've, been, we've been programmed now for decades to seek that as athletes. We're programmed, that's, that's, our, that's our brain chemistry operates on finding that feeling. And we stop playing, and it's really hard to replicate that for anyone, but it's really hard to replicate that if you're 37 or 38 years old and you've got to start something new. And you're starting a lot of times, you know, sort of at the bottom. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's something I saw multiple times. Uh, and one other thing that a former player said to me. Um, he said like one of the the tough parts is that as a professional athlete, you're always like the model of competence and fortitude and strength. And so when people come to you with these opportunities, you can't say like, I don't understand what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> you know, like yeah. you can't like it actually is like a, a tough thing for an athlete to say like, look, I'm at the bottom of the totem pole yeah. Yeah. when it comes to understanding like this business opportunity, like this thing. And so like there's a lot of feigned, uh, feigned knowledge uh, or like uh, where you're not able to be honest. Uh, this, this is what a former athlete told me. And I heard this and I was like, that makes a lot of sense uh, because, you know, you're like at the pinnacle in one thing. And it's very hard to go from that to all of a sudden um, saying like, I don't know, fuck all about what you're talking about. <laughs> right. No, there, that requires a little bit of humility, I think. Uh, the, other, the other component is we are relevant. We're relevant as athletes. It's much easier, and I've heard so many guys say this. I mean, I've, we, we get retired players through the union come speak to our teams every year. So I've heard this now for 14 years from multiple players. You know, 
if I want to get if I want to get on the the phone and get in contact with someone, let's say um, a CEO of a, a Wall Street bank, um, a, a CEO of a food startup, those things are relatively easy for me. It might take one phone call, it might take two, it might take one email, but generally speaking, I can get in contact with that person. Uh, I'm not just saying I; I'm saying the active player. Um, as a as a as a former player, when, when you have, when you have former NBA player as opposed to NBA player, it's much harder. Um, and for a lot of guys, especially in the previous generation, they had they waited until they were done playing to start pursuing other opportunities. And what you've seen now in our generation of players, and and even amplified even more so with with the the current guys that are coming up, you know, the eighteen to twenty two crowd is they all have something else going on. They all have their hands in something else. They're all pursuing other things and and still finding that balance of of working and loving the game. Wow, that's interesting. I'm glad people are getting an earlier start. Uh, you know, I, I actually draw a comparison between what you described about the, the nerves and the energy of the playoff game to being on the trail. And yeah. I, I said just now, like, you know, oh, that that's like, the fact is like when I was campaigning, when I was in the dead of winter showing up to Iowa and there were eight people in the union hall or whatever, it was actually still cool and awesome. Like I still, because like yeah. the eight people, I was like, and I used to tell this joke. I was like, do you know how many Californians each of you is worth? <laughs> then I'd be like a thousand each. So there's like there are 8,000 people in this room. So yeah. I'm all good. Um, and I was good uh, because there was nothing like fighting for, uh, you know, the, the future of the country. And like, if there was one person I thought could help me, like I didn't care how many people showed up. Um, so that, that, that's probably the closest I'll ever get to an NBA game. And then, yeah. and, and, and then uh, the, uh, though I have been courtside, so, you know, there's that, but the, then the, the campaign ends um, and like, we're still doing other things and I'm like excited about them. Um, but certainly I can see people who in politics also chase that high again. Uh, you know, like there, there are some people and I don't consider myself one of them happily, but there are some people who just really get somewhat addicted to the spotlight or like addicted to being, um, as you say, maybe like highly, highly relevant. Um, like I, I'm not really wired that way. I'm like not um, not very uh, accustomed to seeking press the way that I, I did on the trail. Um, but I can, I, I think those are parallels, man. And like, it, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I can almost conceptualize like this, like X, Y bar graph where like, if you're a current player, your relevance is like super high. And then when you retire, like it starts to drop, like in, 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 with, with like each pr- preceding yeah. year. Yeah. Oh man. That's, it's spot on. I, I was actually going to bring this up. You, you kind of just talked about, it, but I was going to bring you this up earlier. Um, I can't remember what you had said earlier, but in terms of your motivation, and, and you and I have spoken a few times on the phone uh, prior to, to this. Uh, so again, uh, coming from a casual sort of you know uh, friendship, but also my observance of you as a public figure, you know I've always felt like your motivation for running for president and for doing the things that you're doing now are in the right place, where a lot of politicians, their motivation can be very self-serving at times. This is not a, 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 a liberal take or a conservative take. This is across the board, right? We, we need more people in public office who have 
the the desire to serve and help the greater good, to, to, to serve and help our country, as opposed to serving themselves. Perhaps no greater example of this than the person in, in the Oval Office right now, of course, with in, in, in President Trump, who has proven time and time again that he is simply acting in his own self-interest. And we as a country need to get away from that effective immediately, but certainly uh, in November. I, I think, unfortunately, politics attract certain type of people. Some, some of them are <laughs> awesome, but like some, yeah. some of them just really just love uh, love to see themselves on TV, love to see pictures of themselves or posters like smeared up on, on things. Uh, I almost feel like we should take people who would never run for office and put them in charge. <laughs> like, like that, that would be like the what you would never yeah. dream of actually like running yeah. around and, and saying, look at me, look at me. Like we should probably give you a lot of responsibility um, be, because the the behavior is necessary to run for office successfully. Uh, overlap only slightly with the behaviors you would want from like a successful policymaker or uh, or governor or executive. Um, it's really strange, JJ. I mean, I, I said it to someone, I was like, if you were a CEO with these behaviors, you'd be like the, the shittiest CEO in the world because your company is totally going to shit behind you and all you're doing is running around being like, look at me, look at my vision. <laughs> like I, I used to, I used to operate, uh, you know, a company and like the, the important thing when you're operating a company was the, the like day to day, the satisfaction of your people, um, like whether or not you were actually providing whatever service you were providing at like the highest level. Yes. And most of those things had nothing to do with it. It would be like, you know, if an NBA player like just did press all the time and stopped working out <laughs> or something, right. something totally ridiculous. Uh, and so you're right that like, unfortunately, the way our um, running for office, the mechanics, like it, it rewards certain personality traits. Uh, it also, frankly, and I said this on the trail before, like, I think it's tougher on women. It's tougher on unrepresented minorities who often don't have like a financial base or like a bunch of people they can call and say, hey, will you donate money to my my campaign? So we're, we're ruling out a lot of awesome people from the get go. Um, and one one way I think we could change that is if we just like either financed campaigns publicly or my, my proposal was we gave everyone 100 democracy dollars. And then if you don't have a lot of money, like all of your buddies would still have a hundred dollars and it doesn't matter if they're rich buddies, yeah. you know, it could be like anyone to be like, Hey, you, you know, you get a thousand people together. That'd be like enough to get started. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for saying that about the way I came across on the trail. Like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad that was, that it was apparent that, you know, I, I wasn't running for, um, you know, some ego driven reason. Yeah, for sure. I, I have a question for you, and you, you may have talked about this on your podcast before, so I apologize, but uh, I'm just curious, what, what was the biggest thing you learned about politics in general during, the camp, during your campaign? I was uh, educated on the role of the media, um, and I talked to Tom Steyer a little bit earlier today, and we were like just like um, laughing about lessons learned on the trail. Uh, Tom's another guy who ran for president. And we were both talking about like how the media um, would really 
put their thumb on the scale in ways that like you, you found very jarring um, in real time. Um, and I was sort of naive. I thought the job of the media was to show up and report. And so it's like, if I had a great event, then you would report that I had a great event. <laughs> and you would just sort of catalog what was going on. Um, but but there was very much like this filtering and uh, weighing um, that the media was doing. Um, and they would do it in ways big and small. Um, and I, I was surprised by it repeatedly throughout the campaign where uh, like I, I was just like, you know, like one example I use, um, I'm not sure I've spoken about this openly, but like I, I spoke at an event in Iowa. It was one of the first events I did. It was in um, maybe even 2018. Um, and the headline speaker at this event was Michael Avenatti. And this was when he was uh, talking about running for president. And so I, I gave and it was like my big political speech debut. And I had like practiced and everything. <laughs> it was like um, uh, and then Michael Avenatti spoke. And as far as the journalists in the room were concerned, it's like Andrew Yang didn't exist. And it was like, oh, oh my God. And, and I thought objectively, yeah. Michael gave a bad speech. I thought I was like, well, that was shitty. He just like read every word. He went five minutes over. I thought the uh, applause was like polite. And then the journalists in attendance were like, Michael Avenatti, like rocks Iowa. And, and I was like, what is going on? Like, that, that, like that's, that doesn't seem to me to be like an objective uh, depiction of reality. Um, and so that was one of like the first big clues I got was that like the press had certain narratives that they almost had preloaded. Yeah. And then when uh, the story came, like the story was all, almost pre-written. And, uh, and so like there was a period when I was like uh, trying to weigh my own performance. I was like, oh, if I just like kicked more ass at that Iowa event, then they might have like written like a line or two or a paragraph about Andrew Yang, but <laughs> right. it wasn't really right. objectively. You were great that day. Objectively. Oh well, well, thank you, JJ. I thought so too. I mean, uh, so but yeah, it was like this, that. This is one of the, was, this is one of the issues, you know, with media. But it, I, I think it's difficult for a a, a the person, the, the personal side of journalism. It is difficult because we're human beings to separate your own bias and your own agenda and what you're seeing, because you're seeing it through your lens. That's difficult. What, when it becomes really problematic is when the, the corporate media has too much say in, in the lens that we're, we're viewing. Uh, and I think you know what I, what I mean by that, but when we're, we're talking about institutional bias and institutional agenda, that's what's telling the story that's where we're, we're, we're seeing this, this huge divisiveness, I think, across this country. Yeah, I, I agree. And there's a, a growing mistrust of um, various cable news channels and corporate media as a result. And that mistrust is really destructive when you're talking about, for example, a pandemic and everyone's looking around saying, well, what do I trust? And you have, let's say, certain news sources or authorities saying, wearing a mask is a really good idea. Then some people, somehow that got politicized in some circles. You're like, how the heck did could you politicize that one? Like, yeah. it, it seems, I literally uh, talked about this on my podcast. I think it was last week where it's like it, every, everything now. And look, we were told for weeks not to wear a mask. I'm sure we won't, we all want to do over on that, but you know, everything now, every study out coming out now, well, the, the way to mitigate this, the way to reduce this is to just wear a mask. And somehow that not wearing a mask has become, at least on social media, you're owning the libs if you don't wear a mask. Yeah, it's very dark. It's, I don't get that. 
I, I don't I don't understand that at all. We're talking about your own you know health, the the, the greater public's health, maybe maybe a relative's health. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about Democratic or, or Republican here. Yeah, I I just uh, tweeted. Um... The coronavirus doesn't care if you're tired of the coronavirus. <laughs> I, I saw that. Saw, saw I that. saw yeah. that. It was good. It so, was good. so it's just like, you know, it doesn't give a shit about your politics. It just wants to, you know, get in there and, and uh, proliferate and reproduce itself. Uh, so one thing that's going to make you, I believe, the Yang Gang's favorite uh, athlete is that you actually were pro-universal basic income before anyone had even heard of Andrew Yang. And I'm actually like fascinated by this because <laughs> I'm really interested how you came to this conclusion independently uh, before I even arrived on the scene. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I didn't come to the conclusion independently. I certainly had some, uh, some, some nudging in the right direction. So I, I'd started reading articles about UBI, I think about... Uh, 2017. And again, you know, as, as humans, we develop differently. My, my sort of social and political and, and awakening, like I'm in the middle of it right now. And I'm, I'm trying to figure it out because, you know, you and I have talked about this before. We're, I'm trying to figure out sort of the second half of life and what that means beyond just being a basketball player and beyond just truthfully being a dad. Like there's, there's something else out there. Um, so I started hearing about UBI in 17. I, I read, you know, some of the results of some of the studies done. Um, and then you were on uh, a podcast, I think in the fall, Sam Harris, Sam Harris's podcast. Yes. Who Sam is, that's literally my favorite podcast. Um, so you run on Sam Harris's podcast and, and, and you were obviously gearing up for this, uh, for this run. So that's when it really came into sort of my consciousness. Um, and so I've, I've, look, I've been a supporter of, of UBI now for, for almost two years. Um, you know, you and I have talked about how I can get involved in, in some things that you're doing. Um, it's something that I support. It's something that I, I inherently believe in, um, for, for a number of reasons. Um, I had a question for you though, about UBI. Sure. So this is a question that I have. Has there ever been a study or a, an ex one of these, you know, experiments that last beyond a set number of years? Or has it all been, we're going to do this for five years, we're going to do this for 10 years, whatever. There's a term limit, essentially. Man, I wish that we were looking at five or 10 years as the, the trial lengths. I mean, uh, most of the studies that have been done have been for shorter periods than, uh, than that. Maybe um, one to two years would be customary. So you'd have to go further afield. There was a MinCom study in Canada that extended right. for multiple years, and it was long enough so that people could rely upon it. And there you saw incredibly positive effects around people, not just like being less stressed out or mentally healthier, but they actually made different career decisions based upon the fact that they could rely upon this money. They knew they had it coming in for a number of years. And so you literally saw people start small businesses and go back to school and do all these things that you hope people would do. Um, but there need to be more trials that are longer in time frame because I, I think, you know, it's like you get something and you're like, okay, this is great, but can you rely upon it long enough where it actually starts making, um, uh, making you like make different life decisions. Right. And, and that's something we we're going to find out. So we're doing a trial, you know, that it's going to be for five years. And I think that might be one of the longest trials going here in the United States. 
Um, the other things that have been out there, unfortunately, though, I, I will say in the developing world, some of these things are uh, planning on extending for a long period of time, but they only got started one or two years ago in some of these settings, uh, like give directly some of the work they're doing internationally, I believe is supposed to be evergreen, but it hasn't yeah, been around long enough to be able to sure. see what it looks like five or 10 years. long term. Yeah, that, that sort of brings me to, to just a, a thought that I have about UBI in general is, you know, is behavioral change uh, has to occur or will occur if you know something is going to last longer than a certain period of time. I'll give you an example. So if I, if I retire, when I retire, I have a, like a little, a little bridge. At the ripe old age of 46, after the, after the stroke eventually abandons you, yeah. after you said every at some point, point soon. At some point soon. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I retire, I have, a, I have a bridge program, they call it the bridge program, where an annuity pays me a certain amount a month until I hit age 50. And at that point, I can, I can take out pension. So at age 50, I can take out my pension. Now at this point- Wait, Is this set up through the NBA or is this something that- This is through the NBA and the NBPA. No, this is through the NBA, NBPA. We, we, we basically, 1% of all BRI goes to this sort of program. So the owners uh -huh. get 49, we get 51. 1% of that 51 goes towards uh, health benefits, uh, retired player care, uh, this bridge program. We get an annuity based on your years of service. It pays you a certain amount until age 50. 50, you can take out your pension. Well, at 50, I know exactly how much money I'll get for my pension. And I know that it's going to last the rest of that. I'll get paid that out the rest of my life. There is no, there's no term limit on that. Um, for most people, when they retire, you know, they're, they're getting a pension or they've got their 401k. Like these are, these are numbers that are sort of set in stone. That affects your behavior. That affects how you budget. That's, that affects the risk you take. When you're talking about a one or two year period, I don't know that that's enough time to directly affect behavioral change in terms of risk and happiness. I, to me, there's probably even more of a stress factor there. Like, what, what am I, what am I going to do with this extra money? I've only got, I've only got 24 months to, to, to make this happen. So I would, I would be very interested to see, you know, some, if we could implement this on a, on a longer term basis. I, I agree with you. We need to, make it so that people can actually make different decisions. And instead of thinking like, oh, I will say happily, like I, I've personally given a thousand bucks a month uh, to several families. And I'm happy to say that it really does make them feel like they have uh, a lot of a lot more freedom and liberty during that year, and it doesn't stress them out thinking like, oh, like what am I going to do on this end? Like, they, 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 they're actually like pretty pleased. Yeah. Uh, but I'm with you. Well, I think for most people, but for most people though, like, look, we're, we're you're talking about do I pay my bills? Do I buy groceries? Do I pay for my kid's school? Do I get out of student debt? Like, we have there's so many financial decisions that the average person has to make, uh, and it's why this this money is so important that we get it in people's hands. I, I mean, I, it, it's a benefit to the individual and it's a benefit to society. There's, there's no question in my mind. Yeah, I, I agree. And uh, most Americans now are waking up to the fact that we can do this and we should do this. Uh, you know, I just hope that Congress follows the will of the people. I think uh, the last poll I saw was something like 72% of Americans agree we should be getting cash relief during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, what's funny, too, is uh, my campaign ended and then um, the energy around 
me and universal basic income just shot up because unfortunately we're in these circumstances. Um, I mean, you were ahead of your time. You were ahead of your time. Yeah. Five months ahead of my time or, <laughs> yeah. or, whatever, whatever, or whatever it was. So one thing I have to say, um, like I don't envy JJ, is that there's been this multi-month period where you've been in isolation um, and there's this restart hanging off in the distance. So for most of us, if we've done any kind of exercise, we like pat ourselves on the back and we're like, oh, I didn't become a total freaking, yeah. you know, like slug or sedentary couch potato during this time. But for you guys, oh my gosh, you have to like maintain yourself in like world-class uh, condition, <laughs> in perpetuity just because you don't know when the restart is coming like that seems to me to be the hardest thing in the world particularly when you have like young kids and the rest of you have to break away like like what the heck did you do to stay in shape because that seems crazy i mean you must be like one of the most self-disciplined you know guys in the world but like yeah what the heck was your uh, regimen yeah no I'm i'm a very much a routine based person and so i made the decision when uh, everything got shut down. I left New Orleans. Um, I came up to New York the first probably 10 to 14 days. Um, you know, I just kind of like sort of took inventory of everything. I was trying to get as much information as possible about timelines, about what was going on with the coronavirus, about what was going on with local and, and, you know, federal governments. So a lot of that first 10 to 14 days, I was not focused on basketball at all. And I realized that for me to stay sane during this period of time that I had to get back in the gym. So after that sort of 14 day quarantine, um, I found access to a gym. Um, I worked out every day for there, you know, there for about two months. And then I came back to Brooklyn, uh, May 10th and I've had access to a gym here. So I've, I've, with the exception of maybe the first two weeks and then four or five other days, I've been in the gym every day. I've actually, I maybe one of the first, I, not, not, I've lost like 14 pounds, to be honest with you. I, I, I weighed myself today. I was 192. I left New Orleans. I was like 206. So I, I've lost like 14 pounds. Now, some of that, of course, was post-workout water weight, but um, I feel like I'm in great shape right now. Um, I've done a ton of conditioning. Uh, I, I need to uh, get back in New Orleans and Orlando where I have access to a better weight room than what I have access to right now. But all in all, I feel like I'm in, I'm in good shape and I'll be prepared to go. Um, you know, I, I know there's been a couple guys, uh, that have dropped out, um, for, for varying reasons. And I think everybody has their, their motivations to play or not to play. And to me, they're all very valid because this is such a unique, uh, situation. Yeah, that it's, uh, I mean, uh, again, I think people are overlooking the human aspect of a lot of this because what I just said, like staying in shape throughout the quarantine hard, uh, committing yourself mentally to go back to play in a part of the country that right now is seeing a spike in COVID cases for two months away from your family. I mean, people don't realize um, what a sacrifice that can be depending upon what your situation is um, at home. Um, so it's a lot, you know, to, to me, um, I think like you just said, it would be very human and valid for people to take different positions 
on the restart and you couldn't blame them. Like, this is not a situation where you'd be like, oh, what's with these guys? Like, you know, <laughs> like right. I want my sports entertain me. Like, right. uh, you know, like I think there's like a, like a very legitimate attack uh, on both sides. There's also the feeling that some have that uh, Black Lives Matter um, protests are front and center and that you don't necessarily want, um, want, anything to distract from that though the the flip side of that obviously is that uh you know you can actually have a platform to talk about social issues um i like i i i'm, I'm on the vantage points like i could see people making whatever decisions right for them on either side um and being all for it the the tough thing is that we all know there's just a ton of money at stake for both the players and the league like if you don't finish the season i think that that's like uh literally it's like almost like a billion dollar hit um across players and um owners and, and teams uh and that's like a very very powerful set of incentives to try and figure out a, a way to finish the season um and you know a lot of players like you might have very strong personal reasons why you very much want to make sure you get the season done and, and get the playoffs in yeah i in terms of me getting in the playoffs i would say that's very far down my list it's it's insignificant in in, in the grand scheme of things um I, I do believe the financial reasons for returning for either a player or the league itself go beyond just the money we stand to lose this year. Because I do believe, you know, our CBA is sort of in flux right now. And and so if we decide not to play or if, if you know, if um, if COVID, let's say, wipes out Orlando and all of a sudden we're in a lockdown and we can't play, like... You know, there, there's going to be financial repercussions into next year, into the following year, until things are sort of uh, back to normal in terms of fans going to games. We're, we're looking at a hit regardless. Um, I, look, my responsibility, I just say this, my responsibility always is going to be for my family. And if I feel like they are going to be safe and, and, and taken care of, then I'm okay leaving them. Do I want to leave them for two months? No, of course not. But my other responsibility is, is to the league and to the game. It's been amazing to me. Um, and to your point, um, I, get, I totally understand both perspectives of the motivation for not playing versus playing with respect to Black Lives Matter. Um, I do believe there is a, a huge opportunity for us to have a platform, but that platform goes beyond just wearing a T-shirt or kneeling during the anthem. I believe it'll be the first time we've had that many players in one place. The teams will be there. The league will be there. We can have open and direct conversations about coming up with initiatives and, and, and actions that will directly benefit uh, black people and black communities. I, I I believe that. I believe that is the opportunity in us playing and in us going to Orlando beyond just having a platform and a microphone and a camera. Like I think we can get some things done. I think the league will negotiate that on good faith. I think our union is motivated to do that. I know our players are motivated uh, to, to really put forth meaningful change beyond just wearing a T-shirt and, 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 and kneeling during the national anthem. Like we, we need to move beyond that. Um, there could be something very magical and powerful yeah. about having that many players in the same place along with leadership uh, and teams like you. You can imagine something um, very, very significant coming out of that kind of gathering, not just culturally, but organizationally, you know, yeah. resource wise. 
but but, so, but I, to, to the other the other flip side of that is 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 deciding not to play and saying it's going to be a distraction from the Black Lives Matter movement. Totally get that too, and agree with that too. It's not wrong. I don't think either side either one of those perspectives is wrong. I think they're both right. You've seen WNBA players. I think three or four of them already. Uh, Natasha Cloud, Renee Montgomery, uh, Maya Moore a couple years ago. You've seen a number of players come out and say, I'm, I'm going to skip this season and focus on uh, you know, the social justice movement that's happening for, for Black Lives Matter right now. And, and I applaud that. I, I really do. I, I, think, I think it takes an, an incredible amount of courage to do that. Um, I, I don't know that it's right for an entire league. I don't know if it's wrong for an entire league to sit out. I don't know the answer to that. Um, so it's, it's a very, it's a very complicated situation for sure. Well, hats off to you for, uh, for approaching it in a really thoughtful way. And as another family man, it's true. When you know your family is going to be all right, then you're capable of taking a lot of things on. You know what I mean? Like when, when, when my family was like, like I could see that they were happy and healthy um, and I was on the trail and I'd be like, yeah, it's all good. <laughs> like, yeah, like, they're right. fine. And I could like go, right. go do my right. thing. Uh, and certainly like you, like, uh, you know, I feel very fortunate in that side where, um, where whenever anyone thanked me for running for office, I would say, thank my wife <laughs> right. because she's the one who's doing more work and like take it on the chin uh, than relative to me. Um, so I, I can relate very much to that sense of security that, um, you know, uh, enables you to go out and, and uh, play or fight or um, campaign. So, you know, I, I think you're approaching it in, in a great way. I have a feeling that many of the other players are, are approaching it similarly. I, I told my wife this on, um, it was either, I think it was either her birthday or, or Mother's Day. I put up an Instagram post. And one of the things I said to her, uh, both in her card that day and on the Instagram post was just how appreciative I am that she allows me to pursue my obsessions. Like I don't overlook that fact. I don't overlook the fact that I can be obsessive about things and I pursue them in my own way. And she has always given me the space to do that and the support to do that. And Again, it goes back to your point about being out on the campaign trail. There's a part of you, there's a piece of your heart that is just, it's not there. It's missing when you're not with the people you love the most. But if you know that they're okay and they know you know that they're supporting you, then you can sort of go forth with a great amount of, uh, of confidence. Yeah, I could never do the things I, I did uh, if not for Evelyn. So, you know, you say like you love you to your spouse all the time. I actually alternate between saying I love you and I appreciate you <laughs> because there's just like a lot of gratitude. The acknowledgement that the acknowledgement, it's what you need. <laughs> yeah. Like I used to joke, JJ, like I had two, two priorities, uh, eliminate poverty and stay married. <laughs> and I was like, as long as I get those two, um, you know, I've, I've gotten the second one done. Hopefully we can get the first one done if, yes. uh, if yes. Congress will listen to the vast majority of Americans who want to make it better. Hey, JJ, such a pleasure uh, talking to you. Congratulations on really like an incredible career. What I know is going to be an incredible second career. I mean, I said this to you before, but you're going to succeed in anything you put your mind to, man, because like like you're, you're you'd be you're going to end up being one of those role models of NBA players that um, that do something really, really awesome as a second act of, of your career. And if there's anything I can do ever to be a resource to help you in, in that regard, please let me know. 
Thank you, Andrew. And and I know I told you this the other day when you when you said that to me, but it's hearing those words out of your mouth means a lot to me. Um, I I also want to just say I'm a very appreciative of the opportunity to to come on your podcast and as you uh, as you've launched this thing and um, huge honor to be on this pod and 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 to to be able to speak on your platform. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. Right back at you. Yeah. You know, you're, <laughs> you're the man. You're the, well, actually, you're, you're, you're actually, if I put this up on mine, you're speaking on my platform too. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say right back at yeah, you. Yeah. It's my privilege to show up on the JJ Reddick podcast. There you go. On the Ringer Network, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> <laughs>